You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, where it's all about helping you grow your Denver real estate portfolio. Here's your host, Chris Lopez. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. This is another deal analysis, but it's going to be different from all the ones I've been doing the past couple months on the podcast. So today we'll be talking about a portfolio of six fourplexes in Wheat Ridge uh, from a different perspective because my guest today is Terrence Doyle. You guys have seen him a lot of the podcast and you know the last couple of years he's transitioned from single family flipping to doing multifamily stuff and now he's really upped his game even more to doing putting together uh, bigger deals and in, a, in ways in the syndication as well. So it's very interesting to talk to him because A, it's in Denver. B, this is a deal happening that's happened in 2020. So recently we talked about some COVID stuff. And also I'm getting more interested myself in taking some of my money and doing some more passive investing as well. So I want to start learning more about this side of the world, about how they structure it, the returns as well. So Terrence, I'm glad to have you here, man. Chris, thanks for having me. And then we got another guest here, Ben Davis, who's your CFO, correct, right? That's right. All right, Ben. Well, glad to have you here. And I forgot to mention uh, your company is the Value Add Real Estate Company, or Verco for short. And that's what you're doing all these deals through now, right? That's right. That's kind of our branded name. Uh, the thinking is everyone talks about wanting to be in Value Add deals, and we feel like we that's what we know and we do uh, really well, and that's what we're that's how we branded ourselves. And so uh, for everyone out there, this will be the first of many podcasts we're planning on doing quite a few with Terrence and Ben and their team and just talking about the structures. So if you guys listen to us, you have feedback, you have questions, reach out to me. We want to make this better because we have a lot of different numbers we'll be talking about in here. I want to make sure that we can uh, try our best to communicate clearly. Now, we will have some screenshots to some numbers in the show notes if you guys want to reference some of the numbers we talk about. If you got specific questions, they'll always reach out to me and we'll get you the full details. All right, guys. So jumping into this, uh, what is the background on the property and how you got it? Yeah. So basically, you know, so many people reach out to me and I'm sure you every month and they want to know, how do I get into multifamily? They've, you know, maybe they've done one or two flips or have a couple rentals or they have a duplex, they've house hacked. And they're like, how do we take it to the next level? And I was the same way in 2017. And, you know, the punchline, you know, from my experience is just relationships. People say that, you know, you can only get deals through brokers. And, you know, I don't totally agree with that. We've got, but I think you have to get deals through relationships. You know, I think you can do the mailer route. I think in Denver, that's really difficult to do. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a broker, but it's relationships. And this deal came about through a relationship that I built two years ago uh, with one of the top, and I would say senior level uh, multifamily brokers in Denver. He's been doing it for 20 plus years. And he know you know he's either sold a lot of the deals or sold them to you know the family members of the uh, you know that own them, and on this particular deal is the same thing. He helped this guy get into a couple different properties, and then the property manager called the broker and said, "Hey, I'm I'm going to sell this for the owner. Do you have anybody? I don't really want to list it and go through the whole dog and pony show and have a bunch of you know, um, especially during COVID, have a bunch of showings and have to get potential buyers in. You know, is there a way that you have, you know, we can just make one or two phone calls and put this under contract. And he called me and we had it under contract 24 hours later. So that was, you know, so the long and short of it is it's someone that I've worked with a long time. And this is the, this is going to be the first or second deal that we close in two years. So a lot of patience, a lot of time spent looking at other deals and this one, you know, fit our box and we were able to get it done. 
And that's something, I mean, we preach about. I mean, we're a broken record on right. patience and long game a lot. So that's just another great example. Uh, so going back to relationship, because I think there's a big difference of if you're, if you're going for, you know, multifamily versus single family. I'd say, from my experience, a lot more multifamily definitely trades through hands or brokers. Right. Where single family at times it can be like, hey, direct, uh, you know, contact the distressed owner or go through a wholesaler. Right. But I think a lot more multifamily goes through brokers. Is that what you've been finding too in your deals? Yeah, 100%. I think that just the nature of commercial is that there's a small number of people that control the relationships with the sellers just because there are fewer number of commercial properties in Denver. And so there's a fewer number of people that have those relationships, have those databases. And yeah, is there a needle in the haystack? And could I send out mailers and do cold calling and try and get them on the phone? Yeah. But I think, you know, if I just focus on what I do best and double down on my strength, which is construction, execution, and the capital, I can let someone else focus on building those relationships and just calling me when they have a real seller that's ready to sell. And so, yeah, when we were doing single family, I mean, there was you know, we did mailers, we did door knocking, you know, wholesalers, auction. There's so many ways to do single family. And I think multifamily, especially in a city like Denver, very dense, rapidly growing uh, with price appreciation like we've had, you're just very like, very unlikely to find a needle in the haystack with someone that doesn't understand the value of their property and is going to respond to a cold call or a mailer. It, it can happen and it has happened. I just think, you know, I'm going to play the percentages and play to our strengths and, and rely on people that do that full time. And plus, I mean, that's what a lot of brokers do is they make 300 cold calls a week to develop those relationships. And that's- 100%. Yeah, they're doing that. So, okay. So, uh, it sounds like this broker, he helped them buy the property years ago. Right. He sold it to them as like the buyer's agent. Or a family member. He had yeah. done multiple deals with this owner and this property manager. And then they knew that he was a guy that they could trust and knew had buyers like us. And they, you know, when they were getting ready to sell it, they called him. And then I think we, you know, he- on the phone, he told me, and this is a guy that I trust. He said, you're my first phone call. I think this is going to be one of the best deals we do all year. I know this fits your box. You know, why don't you take a look? And the backstory to this is in 2016, uh, in 2016, I had bought my first fourplex actually on this same street down the road about two miles. So mm. I knew the area. I knew the tenant class. And I've done a bunch of fourplexes obviously since then. So I understood the construction. And I knew the value of that. And basically the value that we sold that one for in 2016 was 795,000. And it was a fourplex actually smaller than this. So he calls me, I'm, you know, and I already knew the address, knew the area, had experience in this area. And, you know, when we talked about the deal and we'll go into the numbers on the rents, but when he started talking about the, the rents, I was, you know, I was, it was just a no brainer because I knew the area. So then we made an offer really quickly and put it, you know, put it under contract. Okay. And what's the, um, from a high level, like what's the, the property type? Like what's the unit mix? What's the layout? All that. It's their two bedroom, one bath units. So it's six fourplex properties. And then one of them, uh, one of the units has an extra basement. That's a two bed, one bath. So it'll actually end up being 25 units uh, when we're done with it. But it's currently 24 units, uh, 23 two bed, one bath. They're roughly 780 square feet. And then one of them happens to be 1600 square feet. And it's a four bed, two bath. Oh, wow. But they're all built the exact same. There's actually a little carve out of land about half an acre behind it uh, that comes with with the lot, with the property as well. So it's just, they're all strung along. It's just six fourplex buildings and then some land, you know, on the same plot. And these are, I've seen some photos. I mean, these are just the typical like two-story all brick fourplexes that, you, that are pretty common around Denver, right? Yeah, that's right. Just straight, you know, just right down the middle of the fairway, fourplex, brick. Uh, some of them have 
have some newer windows. There's like a common area, you know, behind one of them where, you know, we think we can do like a playground or something like that for kids. So yeah, just six fourplexes with patios, you know, all kind of in a row. And then it's all just, they're all together on uh, one one lot? One parcel. That's okay. right. That's right. And then do you want to go to numbers? I don't know if you've closed the deal or not, but can you go to numbers as far as like what you've offered negotiating or are yeah. you? Okay. Yeah. So we put it under contract at 3.85. Uh, million and which was roughly 160 something a door. Ben can give us the exact numbers here in a minute. But um, then we did our inspection, and after inspection, we were able to get a concession of 60,000. So we're going to be just under 3.8 million for 24 units. Uh, that's a really good deal. So okay, so you put it under contract. What's the uh, kind of going into the due diligence? Because I know. You guys are very, you have like your high level sniff test, I'll say. Right. You know, you act fast, you put in a contract, but you always do your due diligence. And what was your plan for due diligence on this portfolio? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So, you know, part of, like you said, is you got to be able to move fast. I think I've talked about that a lot. You build relationships, you know, for so long, and then someone calls you, you got to be able to move and react quickly. Otherwise, they're going to call somebody else. So we, we did that. And then after that, then Ben and I kind of get to work on our team on, on underwriting and doing, you know, so a full rent study. But the first thing we do is we schedule the inspection. So once we're under contract, we, we have an inspector that specializes in multifamily and he comes out and inspects the roofs, the plumbing, the electrical, the foundation, uh, every single sewer line. So this has six buildings, so six different sewer lines that connect to the main. He checks the, the, the gutters. I mean, every square inch of this place, places that I don't even care, crawl spaces, every single thing he's going to check out. He's going to take pictures and do a full report. So you're doing a full inspection. Full inspection. Because I know your single family flips used to just do like a walkthrough and sewer scope basically, right? That's right. Because the inspect- basically they end up costing between six and $800 a building. So it's pretty expensive. This is six buildings. So you can do the math. It was four or $5,000. So it's a lot more expensive, but because the dollars are so, are so much more and because we're going to have other people's capital at risk, and that, I think that was part of the difference is when we're doing single family, it was all my ca- all my company's capital, didn't really have anyone else's capital risk. And I could just walk in there with my GC and we could check everything ourselves, still do a sewer scope. Um, but we'd have the electrician check the electrical. But this time I hire someone that's lic- a licensed inspector. And he goes in there and, you know, investigates every square inch, trying to uncover everything about the property. And then parallel to that, we order an environmental, a phase one. And you know, Ben and I laugh about this because it seems like overkill. But again, when we're having other people's capital at risk, we want to uncover every stone and basically leave nothing, uh, leave nothing that's been unverified and checked out about the property. So we order a phase one. And really the phase one is going to tell us everything that this property has been since Denver has been, you know, since Wheat Ridge was this zip code and this address. So it's going to go all the way back to when this became a plot, an address, its own parcel. And it's going to tell us every sing- everything it's been every 10 years. So I can see when it was farmland and then when I see when they first pulled the permit to build it, when it was built and, you know, different improvements they've made, every permit that's been pulled on it, you know, every, everything that's been done in the area within like a five mile radius. And so it gets pretty into detail. It's actually a 142 page document, a phase one environmental is. And, and you so, make Ben read all that? We go through it together. <laughs> it's kind of algebra. And then we actually, you hire an attorney to, okay. to read through it and tell you if you missed anything. But Ben and I, uh, I actually did read every single page just because this is maybe the third one I've looked at, you know, from my previous life when it was just my own capital and doing single family, we never had to do a phase one. And you're doing this, this is just for your own due diligence for basically your investors, not because it's a lending requirement, right? That's right. We're doing it for our own due diligence. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So it's one of the, it's one. It's on our checklist, right? 
It's going to have fault line information, you know, the density of the soil and everything. It's going to tell you basically from the ground down. Now, they actually go down there, because I know there's different environmental studies, and I'm not an expert yeah. on those. Are they actually taking soil samples, or is this all just like the history of it? The history, and they do take soil samples. Okay. So, a phase, it goes into different phases, but on this one, they don't have to go. They're just going 20 feet, and I think on other ones, they go even a lot farther. Okay. And they're checking more than that. But yeah, this one talks about 20 feet, basically down to the water level. Okay. So. And anything anything pop out there that you guys weren't expecting or out of the ordinary on the environmental report? Because this parcel, this property has only ever been multifamily. There was nothing that was found. Uh, it was kind of interesting to go back and see, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, what that area, what we Ridge looked like. And so that was educational for me, but it's basically only been an apartment. They pulled permits to do some sewer work, to do some electrical work and to do, I think the roofs 10 years ago. So that was, you know, so you learn what people, what they've done and how many times it's traded. This property hasn't traded. Uh, this will be the first time it's sold. So you kind of learn some different really? things about that. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. these were built, what, in the 60s? 62. Okay. Yeah. So, it's, you know, I think part of what I enjoyed reading them is, you know, when people ask, when our investors ask me about the property, I think I know more than I need to now. But it's it was interesting and educational, and I don't know how many more of those I'll be reading from, from front to end. But, you know, it's uh, just part of due diligence and making sure that we're thorough and that we're, you know, have all the data points that we need to make the right decision. So that was part of due diligence. So we, you know, we order the inspection, we order the, the uh, environmental, and then we do a rent study. And a rent study, and we've talked about this on multifamily, basically means we drive the property, you know, and we're going to check everything within six and 12 blocks around it, see, you know, if there's, you know, what restaurants there are to eat, if there's any shopping, schools, transportation, you know, is there any, is there anything substantial or significant, you know, within walking distance or within, you know, one mile of driving? And again, since I, had done a project, a multifamily project, really on the same street a couple of years ago. I kind of knew about the the area, but there's been a lot of, you know, just like in all parts of Denver, there's been a lot of development in the last couple of years there. Uh, they actually took down a Ford dealership on the corner uh, down the street and they've redeveloped that into some mixed use and some restaurants. So it was, it was great for me to drive down and see that. And then we, I pull up hot pads and Zillow and apartments.com and I'm basically going to go on and try and look at you know, what are the two bedroom, one baths in this area, similar condition, and what are those rents? And, you know, I pulled up, I think, what, Ben, we did like 10 of those. And we've so. got, because uh, I know we, for a lot of people listening to this, we've got a, your memo here with a summary on here. Um, and is this something we can take a screenshot and put on the yeah. on the website? Yeah, sure. Just the rent study? Okay. So there's some of the rent comps. So yeah, so walk me, there. so explain this to me, because I, I have not read this memo yeah. in detail. Um. So kind because of, I know this is just the summary page for your investors, right. but kind of walk me through it. So basically, I'm just looking at what are the similar properties that are direct competition if I'm trying to rent this that I can use as data points to understand what I'm going to rent this for conservatively. And conservatively to me means, you know, if if there's rents that are at $1,395, then I'm going to try and say that we can lease it for $1,295 or, or $1,250, right? So within 5 to 10% under so that I know that we can get. And so that's what we did here. So we, I, I pull up the websites and then I drive the properties and I see, okay, there's a property here, one bed, one bath, 850 square feet. So ours is a two bed, one bath, but it's about the same square footage, same build. So do you go, because I noticed the three on this page are all one bed, one bath, but you mostly have two bed, one bath. Are you more focused on square footage or, or bed bathrooms? That's actually a, that's a kind of a tactic to, that's kind of insinuating Look what this person's getting with a one one 
We okay. have a two one. So because of that, it should be clear that we could get at least this rent. And obviously, we, because of another bedroom, we would want more. So this is like your conservative baseline. That's right. That's why those okay. are highlighted in an investment memo because it's showing a, a potential investor. You know, the the rents that we're underwriting can technically be achieved in a one one, so that the investor should see that and, and feel really good about renting a two one at or above that price. Is the reason those are one ones? Okay, that makes sense. That's exactly right. It's like if they're getting. Twelve ninety five and thirteen, like on that second one there, it's smaller, one bed, one bath, and they're getting thirteen ninety five. Now that one on the interior has washers and dryers, right? And so I do that. I, I list all the amenities and you know kind of compare them back and forth. And then you can look at the kitchens there. So it's outdated cabinets, outdated countertops. Those are just ceramic countertops with a, a yellow fridge and a white stove. You know, so they're and they're getting twelve ninety five, one bed, one bath, seven hundred square feet. So to Ben's point. We can look at that and say outdated one bed, one bath is getting twelve ninety five. The other interesting thing about this is there were very few two bedroom, one bath unrenovated that I could comp. So when I called the complexes, they had they were full. So some of these properties had more two bed, one bath, and they had a waiting list for those. So then we put that as a data point that there's not a lot of two bed, one bath inventory available here. And if there was, then this is what this is what they're getting. So that, it also goes to show that there's a need for more two beds. And this complex that we're purchasing under con- that that we're purchasing is full as well. Okay, and then so I mean so the the one one comps for I'd say pretty looks like from that one interior foot a pretty standard rental grade stuff in Denver. Right. Actually, probably a little bit nicer than a lot of the stuff we see out there. You're looking at twelve ninety five to thirteen ninety five for that. And so you guys underwrote yours at would you underwrote it at and what do you think it will get? Yeah. So what we do is so we look at the current rents. So the current rents for the property are nine forty four. Right on average across on average the, okay. across the board nine forty four. So immediately, you know, I'm you know I knew that it was low because I you know four years ago we were renting two bed one bath for twelve ninety five, but I want to confirm that and verify it and see if things have changed. So then we do the rent study and we realize that pretty con- pretty conservatively we can get twelve ninety five to thirteen ninety five. So what we underwrote it was eleven ninety five plus a hundred in rubs, and the rubs is the bill back for water, sewer, and trash. You underwrote it that low. That conservatively. Wow, okay. Yeah. And uh. that's just to say, hey, we, we just went through a global pandemic. The next year could be rocky. The next two years could be rocky. We don't really know what the what the workforce housing situation is going to be like. We yeah. don't know if, you know, COVID's going to come back and there's going to be a second wave and there's going to be more unemployment. So we're trying to be very conservative. And that's really what our in, institutional investors are looking for is, hey, if worst case, you know, if shit hits the fan, what can they really get? What can we? What 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 do we have a level of confidence? A high level of confidence they're going to be able to rent, and that's eleven ninety five plus hundred and rubs. And what we'd like to that do is then we'll we'll perform. We'll go in there and do some construction, renovate the units, and most likely we'll come back and show our investors, hey, not only did we beat it, but we beat it by maybe one hundred fifty dollars, and now they're even getting a better return than what they had projected. And that's the goal, right? Is we don't we. We'd much rather do that than tell people we're going to get thirteen ninety five, and then something happens and we're getting twelve ninety five, and and then you know when you when you raise people's level of expectation, even if they're getting a double digit return, if it's a hundred dollars less than what they thought they were going to be getting across the board, they're going to be pissed off. Versus now it's going to be a lot more than what they thought they were going to get, and they're most likely going to be happy. Under promise yeah. and over deliver. That's right. That's a simpler way of saying what I just said. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that, so did you underwrite this? Because I, I know you always write it underwrite things conservatively, did you underwrite this more conservatively because of COVID? Or yeah. how did that factor into there? For sure. I mean, Absolutely. Things were kind of just scary in April, May, like no one knew it was going to happen. pretty wild, yeah. yeah. Very uncertain. Yeah, I mean, banks, the, the amount of scrutiny that banks and investors are 
giving us and the questions they're asking, we have to be conservative. And we can talk about financing. You know, Ben can go in that a little bit later. But yeah, absolutely. You know, we we wanted to be conservative for the bank and for investors so that they have a high level of confidence we'll be able to hit our target. Okay. Vacancy is a, the best mechanism to underwrite, you know, a, some yeah. a pandemic or your prediction on the market for the next five years. Um, that's the best way to throttle that. And do you remember, like, when you were, were looking at this portfolio, how, what was the vacancy and how many late payments were there on the portfolio on average? Yeah, that was definitely something we asked the property manager. And, you know, his response was basically, we've had no vacancy, little to no. It's been the average occupancy has been 98% the last five years, right? And and the reason they have that is because rents are so low. Yeah. So that was his thing is this, this, this owner's owned it for a long time. They have virtually no basis in it, which means there's virtually no debt on the property. And so his goal is just, he wants mailbox money. And so he just wants a number that he can keep it always, you know, always have it full. And that's what they've done. So through the pandemic, they've collected, I think, 98% of rents and they've had one move out, someone moved to Florida, and then that unit was filled the very next day. Like they okay. had a lease signed. So, and it's not a surprise that in this, you know, 944, when we're seeing these comps at 1295 and 1395, it's no reason that, no surprise that they're full. And so, I mean, so I know a lot of times, you know, 5% is a common underwriting number for vacancy for banks. What, uh, when you were underwriting this, Ben, or as you're talking to banks, like, were they using actual vacancy or were they using higher vacancy? They're using, Using actual. Okay. They'll look at his actual or the seller's actual. Okay. And so he, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to lend to us based on 2% vacancy loss, which would be, you know, what he's been achieving. Um, so we'll, we'll underwrite usually eight for before we do construction and then six afterward. It's kind of standard for okay. what we're seeing. And then I want to go, before I actually jump in on the financing stuff, look at my notes here, I want to talk to you about the inspection items. That's right. Because I know you you, yeah. you, know, you did your full inspection. That's right. Um, what, what came back as like, yeah. with the inspection, obviously, like the major items. A lot of stuff, whether it's cosmetic, you probably don't really care. Right. But major stuff you care about. Yeah, so, again, it kind of goes back to empathy, like putting myself in the seller's perspective. The last thing you want to get is a laundry list for an inspection item and then try and get like a big, ask for a big concession. But based on the conversations we had during the inspection, you know, they were under the impression that the roofs had just been done. And I think the the comment that we got was they had been done in the last five to 10 years and they were in good condition. And so one of the big things that we focused, you know, so when the inspection report came back, there was some electrical that had been outdated. And naturally, because this building hasn't been renovated, you know, there was a lot, you know, the soffits and fascia, the roofs, the gutters, uh, some of the electrical panels were outdated the sewers were actually in really good shape. And so- And they have the original sewer lines? Original sewer lines. Wow. Uh, they had been repaired, I think, in the last, maybe those had been repaired, actually. They had so a few, like, and a had, few spot had, repairs had, are, had, okay. had, had some repairs and clean outs. So the big surprise was the roofs. All the roofs were in bad shape. Uh, all needed to be replaced. The gutters mostly needed to be replaced and the soffits and fascia. So there's a lot of work. I think close to like 150,000 just in roofs and you know that exterior work. And so we did, at, you know, so we- you get the you get the roof report back. You get the report from the inspector, and then I send my roofer out there, and I have him give me an official bid with pictures, uh, with pricing to show. So once you get the report, and same thing, we did the same thing for the electrical, for the plumbing, any anything that was a cause of concern for the inspector, we went out, we sent our our vendor out uh, for that particular trade, 
so, to go out and give us a bid. So we get those written bids with the pictures and the inspection report, and we submit those as part of the inspection objection. And then there's kind of a some horse trading back and forth between the seller and us. And we landed on uh, $60,000 that we were able to get as uh, as a concession based on the condition of the roofs, primarily. And I'm guessing none of those were like hail damage insurance claims? They hadn't filed any claims and they hadn't really done anything to And that's what I think what was surprising is they thought they had. And I think when they got the report back and they see the pictures, and it's very unbiased. It's not like we can fabricate that. It's from third parties that, you know, they have licenses. So they they have to, you know, tell it how it is. So I think they were surprised too. And, and uh, it was just from lack of, yeah, it was from not, I think, just being kind of absentee. And for whatever reason, they hadn't filed insurance claims. And, you know, with the four seasons that we get in Denver, that's not uncommon um, to see on shingled roofs. And, and so that's, and so that's kind of how it, that's kind of where we ended up. And, and so we, you know, we spent probably six to $7,000 on the inspection, on all the reporting, and then we're able to get 60,000 back. So that's a pretty good, you know, we felt really good about, and you know, where we ended up, obviously we're going to spend more than we thought, but we're buying the property and we feel like it's a pretty fair basis. So that we felt like that was a fair compromise between with the seller. And even if you get anything back, I mean, expending a few thousand dollars in due diligence, that's worth every dollar you spend on that. So you either know to terminate or you truly know what you're getting into. That's right. Um, Okay. So the main thing here, you said sewers were in great shape. And for everyone out there, always do a sewer scope, especially for all these 1960s buildings. They're clay pipes and they settle and roots get in there and it just happens. Uh, So the roof was the main thing it sounded like though. Roof. There was some electrical stuff we'll have to do. Some of the- Was the electrical stuff that just like- just, just outdated panels. It's out, okay. It's outdated panels. It's up to code in the 60s, but right. now it's just it's the just panels outdated. are 60. Yeah. Okay. So, and they could support all the appliances. So there's no real issue there. It won't be really an issue with rents. Um, you know, we, we'll see that with this, in this neighborhood, I don't think we're going to need to upgrade and offer any additional amenities. So the, the electrical will be fine. We'll make some minor repairs there. The plumbing was pretty good. There's going to be, the boilers were in good shape. The water tanks were bad. So we'll have to add some new hot water heaters. Are they all individual water heaters? Individual water heaters. Okay. Yeah. Uh, other than that, there was nothing really that uh, they they talked about. Some of the brick had settled a little bit. Nothing bad. We'll do some tuck pointing, and we like to paint brick anyway. So we'll come in there, tuck point, and paint them, and give them, you know, give them some life. So um, a lot of the other stuff was just cosmetic, and we're going to be updating these after we purchase them anyway. So it wasn't there was nothing else really alarming. Do these have in-unit washer dryers? They don't. We think we might have some space to do that. They basically every building has its own washer and dryer in the basement. Okay, per building. Per building. Okay. Um, And I'm curious, this is kind of like looping back to earlier, but since we talk about speed, put offer in 24 hours under contract, like from like, you know, the time it was accepted, you're closing. What's your approximate, like, just contract length on doing a deal like this? When we put it under contract, it was 21 days for inspection, which is fast. I mean, I've seen on properties this size up to 45 days. So 21 days for inspection and close 30 days after that. Okay. Due to COVID, you know, appraisals and third-party inspections and banks are just moving a lot slower and they're a lot more conservative. Instead of doing, you know, loan committee every week or sometimes twice a week, now they're doing it once a month or, you know, once every two weeks. So I think we're going to close the first week of August, sometime in August. Okay. Um, so it's still fast, as fast as we can go, uh, but much slower than I think what people are used to pre-COVID But that's just for because sure. of the COVID that's just environment. That's market's moving right now, yeah. Okay. Now, we'll get into more details. I know we'll pull the financial model because I want to talk about that, what's your, your game plan, the work, the numbers, all that. But before we do, I want to loop back around with you, Ben, on like the financing because this is where it gets so interesting. You know, you, you got your financing for takedown, 
I imagine you guys are doing a refi some point in the future, but talk to us about what you're on the finance side. Yeah, sure. So, you know, Terrence will kind of bring uh, bring the deal to me with as much information as he has from the seller or the, the seller's agent. And so start out, we got a multifamily model for a value add strategy. And, you know, I'll have maybe 20% of the information that you need, you know, for full due diligence. And so we'll go through and uh, input either assumptions or actual data, preferably more actual data than assumptions. Assumptions always need to be more conservative. More conservative, the better. Yep. And then we have a basically um, an expectation from our investors on their uh, internal rate of return. You know, what what we even, what the deal would have to look like to even raise an eyebrow as an investment project. So you're you're doing the full underwriting with investment returns for even you're going even before you go in the bank, right? That way you know all your numbers. That's right. Okay. I'm going to assume based on the other deals that we have in the pipeline. I'm I our key bank relationships I'm talking with every single day. Okay. So I'm pretty I stay pretty current on loan to value, interest rate, terms, prepayment. I can I can guess essentially. And I always guess on the side of conservative. And one more question. You, you kind of talked about the your your investors have certain IRRs they're looking for. That's right. What's like, do you have like a, a go-to IRR you're using? Or like over- we do. We do. And it's it's fluid. It's constantly changing. Okay. You know, it's, uh, it's with relation, it's in relationship to investors' alternative investment options. Yeah. You know, so if the Dow is, you know, giving an 11 and, and, and we pitch them on an 11, you know, they're going to probably turn that down because equities are, you know, have a lot more liquidity than a real five-year real estate investment, yeah. obviously. So most of our investors spend a lot of time on where to put their money and it, you know, it needs to be a valuable investment for it to be um, tied up until the refinance or until the disposition. So, um, you mind me asking, like, what absolutely, IRR yeah, you're absolutely. targeting? So right now, a deal would be between fourteen and eighteen. Okay. And then, obviously, um, north of that is outstanding. Yeah. yeah. The thinking there, Chris, is basically you can go into the stock market, you can find bonds, and there's certain things between like you know three and seven, you know, that are pretty liquid. You know, that some REITs are paying six or seven or four or five, and they're and they're liquid. There now, there's risk on downside. Um, and then you can go and do like institutional th- grade things between like five and eight. And so when you're doing value add real estate where there is some risk and there's some market risk and, you know, with the workforce housing and this kind of demographic. And so, you know, I've, I've seen, we've seen deals anywhere from like 11 to 13, you know, just based on my past experience of doing my deals with my own capital, you know, it doesn't really make sense for us to do a deal if it's less than 14. Okay. So that's kind of our, you know, the, the lowest denominator that we'll do is if it's a 14 and we would do that if it was like, Congress Park, City Park, Cherry Creek, or just Rhino or a really core Denver neighborhood that we really believed in, you know, then we would kind of go down to a 14. This being Wheat Ridge is just on the edge of what I would say is like a really great walkable neighborhood that people are going to pay a premium for and it's always going to be full. So that's why on this one, we're going to need to be towards the upper end of the spectrum on that. Right. Our our peers play a a role in that also. You know, you have to look at what other people doing the same exact thing we are you know, what their returns look like as well. Because your investors are looking at that as well. Oh, yeah. You got, I mean, right. basically right. alternative investments right. out right. there. Right. So, so, 
uh, from there, you know, if, if we're still things are looking good, um, you know, we'll start thinking about financing. And so, in the finance world, you've got you know, kind of regional banks or credit unions, state state level size banks, which would be you know, all through Colorado, maybe into Wyoming, Iowa, and then you've got you know, your national Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and then and so each. You know, each project in or each bank is is the right fit for the right project. You're not going to want to flip a house with uh, Wells Fargo probably because it would be you know pretty hard to get a loan, and you're not going to want to build you know a baseball stadium with a regional bank because they yeah. just simply won't do it. And then for deals between three and five million, you're getting into the agency you know availability, which is Fannie and Freddie Mae. You have to go through a broker, and so we have relationships with three or four brokers. And so what I'll do is is I'll kind of put out um, put out the model to four or five people, you know, at a, at a range from agency to the regional banks. And so it'll be across unions. the whole spectrum to see. That's who's right. Best That's right. At their, That's right. These okay. are and these are really key relationships. You know, it's not just a customer service line someone on the bank. It's, yeah. it's a banker that, you know, Terrence and I've had lunch with, you know, we uh, have typically done previous deals with. And are you sending them like your spreadsheet and I'm assuming some type of like summary page in your email or like how much detail are you getting for that first level? Just, Hey, what's this look like? I do. I send them, I send them the summary page from my model okay. and then they, they're, you know, that I already know they're going to come back requesting the seller's financials. That's the main thing they want to, that we're up against is they're, you know, there's, we're saying, Terrence and I are saying, we can make this asset perform at this level. Look at the, look at the returns it's going to yield. Look how easily we're going to be able to make our principal and interest payments. There's no doubt about it. You're at no risk. We're going to crush this. And they're going to come back and say, Ben, send me what the last owner <laughs> yeah. has been able to do. And we'll. Hey, no, uh, no bank takes that line. You're at no that's risk. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's Just right. Give us the money. Just yeah. wire it tomorrow. <laughs> that's right. So no they want to, they're highly concerned with what the, um, the seller has been able to, you know, how he's been able to perform over the past few years. So, you know, you always hope that they have pretty, you know, they've been keeping financials because that can be a problem if, if the answer is like, a lot of sellers he said, have, have he no said financials. He's made a couple of dollars. Yeah. Okay, so I'll so from there, you know, we get the term sheets back and we'll narrow it down to maybe three, maybe two, two options. And then on each term sheet, we're going to be I'm looking at the rate, you know, the term of the loan, the prepayment penalty, the personal guarantees, the loan fee, and then there'll be a debt service coverage ratio requirement. And so based on the deal and our business plan, which maybe is hold, you know, acquire, remodel, refinance, hold for 10 years is going to be a different, you're going to want a different lending structure than if you're going to sell it immediately after the remodel. So what's the high level game plan here? Obviously you guys are taking it down, you're remodeling it, but what's, that's right. What's the high level look like just for like the punch list and the timeline? Yeah. So we raise enough money. That's a, so we raise enough money to for the equity. And most of the time, our investors are very are risk adverse. 
high net worth individuals that are looking for stable cash flow. So they're not looking for max leverage. So one of the differences in my former life where it was just my capital and I was doing deals or just, you know, my company, no outside investors, we were max levering everything. So we were getting 80, 85%, 90% of total cost of the project. And in this world now, post COVID, trying to be conservative, we're doing as little leverage as possible. So we're probably gonna do somewhere between 60 and 65 leverage on the purchase and we'll bring all the equity for the construction. Oh, and this wow. just lowers it just lowers the risk profile. Yeah. Knowing that you're always gonna be able to cash flow even if something catastrophic happens. And so that's good. So uh, what's nice is now it's not all of my capital. So there's other people involved. And so we can do more deals, but just less risk in the deals, just much more conservative. So we protect the downside. No. Yeah. I was okay because you mentioned one of you guys mentioned earlier, you know, just what kind of other investors and your peers were right. doing. I don't see a ton of like syndication stuff, but the ones I've seen, a lot of them aren't doing a 60% LTV. It seems like you guys are going for a lower LTV. Am I is that a correct assumption or is that incorrect? Yeah, it's just just risk. Just for our we know our investors pretty well. They're just, okay. you know, some conservative guys around town and and they are just they're they'd rather have a little bit lower IRR, but but have much less risk. I'll say if you're getting that IRR yeah. with that type of LTV, that's even Still more impressive. Because that's, more, that's yeah, you know, the higher the leverage, usually the, the, the better higher the return. return. That's right, because you need less cash. Yeah. So we're going to raise a little bit more cash here. So then we're going to, since it's 24, 25 units, we're going to try and do two a month. So we think within 14 months, we'll have the whole building turned. Again, when you have LPs, we're going to try and distribute cash every quarter. So in a previously, I would probably empty, the, empty a fourplex or two fourplexes at a time, go in there, renovate them all, and have zero cash flow for six to eight months or very little cash flow, but then I'd have the whole thing turned a lot faster. Now with LPs, we're trying to show cash flow, distribute every quarter. So we're going to do a lot slower, but we're going to have income along the way. So then at the end of the 14, 16 month period, we'll then take this property. The rents will be increased. The NOI should be up 30, 40%, depending on you know how things go. And then we'll be able to take this to one of our agency brokers and Ben will say, hey, here's the new NOI. And we've taken a lot of the risk out, virtually like everything's stabilized now. So now we'll go and get another loan. We'll refinance out, we'll return probably 50 to 60% of the capital of the equ upfront equity back to our investors. And we'll recap the project. We'll get it at a lower interest rate. We'll probably get some interest only for two or three years so that we can even distribute more cash. And at that point, we'll just hold it. You know, we'll be just be able to clip coupons and have mailbox money. Our, you know, we'll have our market tenants in there. Should have very little maintenance. Everything's been turned. We've fixed the roofs, done the soffits, the gutters, the boilers, the hot water heaters, basically everything that we found on the inspection report. We're going to probably add an amenity, something for kids to attract families. We may even add some garages or storage with the, with the back parcel there. So at that point, we'll have just a fully completed project, much less risk. We'll be able to take that, shop that. We'll have, you know, probably multiple term sheets. We'll be able to put them against each other and get a really attractive uh, agency non-recourse loan at that point. And what's your, I'm assuming at some point you'll probably exit or sell in the future, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We, I mean, and is that, I mean, roughly like five years out, 10 years out, or is that to be determined? This will be a seven-year hold okay. as, we, as we have it now. Great. I know we'll dive into more numbers, yeah. so I just want to recap this So I, as we get back to yeah. financing. So you're buying it now. You'll be right on a 60 to 65% LTV going with a, 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 I say probably a local bank loan for one to two years. Right. Rehab it around the two-year mark once it's up. It's stabilized. You got some operating history. You'll then do a, a non-recourse uh, agency debt around the two-year mark. That's right. 
IO for a couple of years and then sell years about around year seven from when yeah, you buy it. That's okay. Right. That's the plan. And obviously if we get a really attractive offer, you know, in a couple, you know, three or four years and our LPs really want to, you know, take some chips off the table, we could do that and 1031 into another deal. But yeah, the plan is and once we've done all that work and we've de-risked the project, you know, at that point we want to kind of be able to let that accumulate some yield for our investors and yeah. really, you know, and pay pay us back. So, you know, that, you know, kind of similar to what I've done in Des Moines where we've done a lot of work on properties and you know, we've refinanced and now they're just cash flowing at that. Once you've done all that work, uh, you want to, and, and on this size of a project, you really want to um, kind of reap, reap the fruits of that. So we expect to, to hold this for, you know, five to seven years. Okay. Yeah. One component that, that makes that strategy so attractive is, you know, your acquisition loans at 65% of the value, then you're going to, you're going to rehab it and increase the value. And then the agency is going to give you 80%. So not only is your is the amount of debt that you're able to have going to go higher, but it's off of a new remodeled value. So we're able to return a lot of equity to the investors. So they they're getting the majority of their principal back and still enjoying you know their uh, distributions for the life of the the project. Okay. So that's why that acquisition loan followed by an agency loan you know is so common because the agency will go up to 80%. And what type of a loan are you guys getting for the initial takedown loan? The banks would refer to it as an acquisition loan. Okay. They, I don't tell them that they're gonna get refinanced out, but when I, when I say prepayment after one year is not an option, they, you know, they see the cards. They can and they, figure it out, They right? know what's gonna happen. Yeah. That's fine with them. So you they, always go for zero prepayment after year one? In a, in a structure in a business plan like this, that would be critical. Okay, depends on the size of the project. Obviously, the larger the project, the longer it's going to take us to rehab it, and so then the prepayment may get bumped out. But the bank's going to make you know a, they're going to have an acquisition fee up there, and they're going to make a good spread. I think they're probably getting money from the government under one percent right now, and they're lending to us in the three. So I mean, they're going to make good money, and we've done a lot of business with them, and so we're able to. And they're going to compete for that refinance. So they're not out, you know, they're not, oh, yeah. you know, it's not like they're losing the deal. They'll be, they'll be looking to be the lender on the refinance also. So what type of terms are you getting, did you get for this on the takedown? We can ask like the rate and, you know, the yeah, amortization and sure. so all that. Yeah, sure. So we got 65% at, or 65% LTV at 3.85 for one year of prepayment, which is irrelevant yep. to us in this business plan. That's a five-year fixed term, and it had a 1% loan fee and a personal guarantee that will be eliminated once we hit a 1.4 debt service coverage ratio. Okay. So that's that's simply your income divided by the sum of all debt payments, regardless of it's with the bank, that bank. You know, you, if you have two or three notes on the property, you have to be over a 1.4. So when you hit that 1.4, the individual or the individuals that guaranteed the loan are released from that guarantee. Okay. In this project, once we restabilize and re-rent at the higher rate, that should be very achievable. And one thing to note, you know, for listeners out there looking to buy a multifamily is, you know, in a pre-COVID world, you know, lending was much easier for commercial properties. I think single family, it probably hasn't changed much. So if you're under four units, that's more your world, but I'm guessing that hasn't changed as much uh, unless you're going jumbo. 
But in commercial, it's changed a lot. It's a lot more difficult. I mean, with our track record and, you know, our, you know, personal balance sheets, I mean, lending is ne- hasn't been an issue the last couple of years, but in the last couple of months, it's been a lot more difficult, even with, even with the, the history that we have with some banks where they've seen us, you know, execute over and over, they're still being just because of their board and, and their underwriting and, you know, just their internal regulations. I mean, much more scrutinized every single line item, every rent roll. They want to know the tenant history. The I mean, they're asking a bunch of a laundry list of questions that we're just not used to. So it's been a lot more difficult. I would say that, you know, for people out there that want to get started, you know, you should probably connect with someone that's an existing operator that has some banking relationships. You know, I'm always trying to put myself in the position of someone that's listening, that's wanting to get in or mm-hmm. wanting to transition. And I think the punchline for them is it's probably going to be difficult to get a loan right now. Banks are only lending to people that they view as like experienced operators, even with agency uh, debt. Freddie and Fannie has been mentioned earlier. You're having to put 12 months operating reserves into an account. So on this loan, they were they were going to make us put $180,000 in an account. So we were going to have to raise an additional $200,000 just to stash away for because they want the reserve account in case tenants don't pay. And so what that means is for people, you have to have a lot more cash, a lot more experience. And that's even for people that are approved, you know, that already have the experience. So I just think the one thing that I've learned, and I think we're going to, you know, I think we have a blog post coming out on bigger pockets about this is just lending in a post COVID world is a lot more difficult. And I think the punchline is banks are just, lenders are much more conservative. There's a lot less capital chasing these deals and they're looking for experienced operators that have a track record. And then they're on top of that, they're going to underwrite the property very, very, you know, have, you know, under a really large microscope, every line item. And that's new to me. You know, I mean, in the last couple of years, the market's been going up and there's been no issues, no pandemic. I mean, everyone's been making so much money. Lending was pretty easy, uh, but not in the last two or three months. It's been a total shift in, in our conversations and the tones from banks. And, you know, I mean, half the banks we talked to said they're not even lending on multifamily the rest of the year. They said that their money, you know, they're just not, you know, they're, they're shutting it down, basically. They're, and, and they told us that. I'm sure that they have people that they're not saying that to. But they just said, you know, our the leverage that we're we have no leverage for multifamily right now. We have a couple of newer clients buying, you know, uh, you know, between like five and fifteen at multis right now, and yeah, we just got run through the ringer. Like we found some good terms right. from banks, but it was a lot more difficult than it was six That's months ago. Been, yeah. Like, and these are people without your experience and yeah. track record. You know, okay, so let's jump in the financial model here because I know we're running up on the hour soon. Um, so Ben, this is. I'm on the right slide, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is this is your wheelhouse, and this is basically just a, a screenshot of Excel spreadsheet that we can put on the blog post so people can can follow along with us. But walk us through the numbers here and tell me if you need me to move anything so you can point to it. Sure. So this is, uh, you know, I have the assumptions page, which I was referring to earlier, which I basically just put in all the information that I know with the rents. It has... The fees, the rents, the operating cost, everything from insurance, utilities to the all the loans, basically every single thing that makes up the deal, and then it uh, it takes every single month from you know over the seven years and basically pulls what I told it and and just runs the financing for the whole seven years every single month to include you know increase for 
expenses and income. Assuming rents will go up and costs will go up. What's your uh, percentage assumptions for expenses and rents? We underwrite three, an accelerator of three on income and a three on expenses, which okay. you know you can see does almost little to your, it does zero to your NOI. Obviously that won't be the case. The market will have either rents accelerating faster than expenses or vice versa. But to be safe, we just run a three and three. And and so it runs the whole model for the whole seven years. And then on and then what you see on the screen is kind of the annual, it's just taking twelve months at a time and showing you the sum of the twelve months divided by a thousand. These numbers are in hundreds of thousands. So up at the top you see inflows from rents and rubs going across and then the expenses and then your NOI. So that's just your your income minus your expenses uh, for all seven years. And then on the far right is just the, specifically the sale. Let me let me clarify because I, I really like the way you lay this out. Because um, on this first section you're talking about, you got the operating expenses and you got your total rent revenue and the total operating expenses. But those are not rehab costs, right? Those are normal no. insurance, taxes, no. maintenance, property management, all the normal just operating That's costs, right? right? Yeah. yeah, you'll see rehab down in, in capital items. So, so I'm going to read a few of these off because so oh, people absolutely. can. So yeah. like in year one, this is when you're taking it down. Total revenue is two hundred seventy-three thousand. Right. Total operating expenses around eighty-six thousand leaves you uh, approximately a one eighty-seven NOI. Year two, and it sounds like. Partway through year two, you should be fully rehabbed and leased up. So you'll, you know, you're at three seventy five revenue. So you're at like a hundred thousand dollar jump in revenue. Um, your expenses go up about fourteen thousand dollars to hundred thousand, and your NOI goes from one eighty seven to two seventy five. Now year three is when you're fully stabilized and good to go, and so you have a full year's worth of you know high rents and normal operating costs. You're at four hundred fifteen thousand revenue. Uh, 105 in operating expenses, and then 309 in NOI, and every year after that, it's just basically you're that three percent increase, right? That's right. Okay. So what I'm what I'm looking here is not only does the NOI need to go up, obviously, as the years go by, but the spread between income and and expenses needs to be uh, growing at a faster rate. Than the year before, which means we're making, you know, we're increasing margin as time goes by. If that were not the case, you you might want to sell um, previous to to the pro forma year. So, not, so not only a, do we want to grow, but we want to be growing at an increased um, in an increased rate incrementally from year to year. So we moving down. These are expenditures, you know, not related to operating expenses, which are your taxes, property management, so on and so forth. So this is the actual development. So, you know, we purchased, we purchased obviously in year one, so that's a, a large negative number. And then in year, throughout year one and year two, you can see in development hard, uh, soft costs, we're spending, spending money on, on rehab and then way out in the sale, the property sold for 5.6 million. It's so pretty basic. And so you're basically assuming roughly about $200,000 in year one and $200,000 in year two for all your development costs. That's right. Okay. And and I see you have soft costs and hard costs. That's right. Bezos says soft costs. What's the difference between soft and hard? Hard is the easiest way to think about it would be the labor and materials that you could, you know, 
items you, that could be purchased at Home Depot plus the individual who's going to install it. Soft costs would cover legal um, underwriting, the engineer's bill, the architect, accounting, our overhead. So, so you just have so these lumped forth. together that, for that's right. That's not, that's, okay. This is a draft so that there are hard costs in there, obviously. Okay. We just have them both under. And then year seven, you got your sale at 5.65 million. million. And yeah. that was what, Ben, a five and three quarter cap or six? It's a five, seven, five. So yeah, so we try to be conservative too. Yeah. That's if, if there's ever a number to be conservative on the, on the whole model, that's that's the one. Yeah, I'd say I mean that, and good chance assuming things are the way, you'll probably be in a low five that's cap right. rate at that that's exit right. point. Which you know, which would make your sales price go up, absolutely increasing your your Signific- investor's profitability. Significantly, but again, under promise, over deliver. So yeah, that's right. We've done six actually in some pro forma six just to be ultra conservative. So so we're moving down now. You know, just two bank loans over the course of the property. That's sixty-five percent LTV to acquire the properties, the two point five million, and then and that's we, that first one, two point five. That's the the takedown loan. That's right, okay. and then we refinance at a six cap of the new stabilized income with at eighty percent LTV through agency, and so we bring in another four point one million and make a sizable payment. You see down there in principal payment to the the original bank loan. So this payment of one point six eight million, that's going back to the pay off the first loan. That's right. Okay. That's right. And so this is just breaking down, you know, the financing flows. Interest goes throughout the entire project, which is another conservative uh, way to look at it. You know, hopefully what? there's some interest only after that we get on the second loan, but we're not gonna count on that. Would you underwrite the agency interest rate at 3.8, which is what they okay. quoted us for an acquisition. So that's a, you know, that's a, it's good that you brought that up because it's two years from now. So it's, you know, who knows what could happen in two years time. And so in the bold t- total fi- financing flows is, you know, just the m- major movement of money um, between the bank and the investors. DSCR, which we already what talked. Do you, I'm sorry. I, what do you mean? I don't. I don't follow you on there. Like the total financing flow is just the sum of of the rows above it. Okay, so that's that's paying off the loads, paying off the loans, and the money you're bringing in. That's right. Okay, that's right. Because I, I, I know near two, investor, you're at a, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be curious when Terrence and myself, as the operators, have an abundance of cash. What is the what's the priority going to be? Is it going to be to me to pay me back a nice healthy return so I can make as much money, or are you going to prioritize the bank? And so that to- total financing flows is going to um, basically you could match up against net LP cash flow and understand. All right, these guys are making a ton of money, but they're not. You know, they're just worried about paying down the principal as much as they can to the bank and not distributing income to the investors. So, so that's why that's, that's, investors are always curious about that. Okay. DSCR, again, is the debt service coverage ratio. And then total developer fees. Obviously, investors are going to be curious, well, how are you guys compensating yourself? So that's, those, those numbers are the, just the annual sum of everything we receive, which in the 
in the early years is a management and a development fee. There's an acquisition fee in year one. And then you see that we go down to 35, 35, 35, 44. Once it's stabilized, you know, we're just taking a management fee. Okay. So that's just all the fees lumped into there. Yep. That's okay. that's that's net compensation to the value add real estate company for their efforts. Net LP cash flow is distributions to the LP, to the investors. So you can see obviously in year one, there's a negative number because that you invested. And that's the amount they've invested about about 1.7 is what you guys that's right. raised. Okay. That's right. At the end of year two, there was a refinance where we basically converted investor debt to to the agency. So we at that 80% LTV, we were able to take a cash out refinance and pay back a lot of the investor equity. That's that's why that's such a high number. So when we talk about yield, now the investor's basis in the in the investment is is generally low. It's it's 50% of what it was or, or even more than that. Okay, wow. And so it, myself, you know, if I'm looking at investing this deal, I'm, I'm thinking about a risk and return. So I see, wow, I'm getting, I'm getting a sizable amount of my at-risk dollars back in year two, but I get to redeem income for five more years. Yeah, I just realized, I mean, you're almost, you're performing what, almost a, just $100,000 less than what they'll be putting in. They'll right, be and that's not, year that's not completely principal. That 1.7 has earned us an 8% preferred return okay. over that year, which we will pay off before we pay anything else. So this investor, to the same point, is he's got a lot less. He or she has a lot less dollars at risk, but is enjoying this. You know the returns through the life of the property. And yeah, so it runs out, and you can see the distributions to the LP, all the way out into the sale. And this final one is the cash flow plus the sales proceeds, right? For, the, for this LP cash flow? That's right. 1.2? Okay. That's right. So I know we're covering a lot of numbers on here, and this will definitely be on the blog post. So listeners out there, go go click on the show notes links. And, you know, this is one of those things where looking at it is much easier than um, us trying to describe it. But, uh, Ben, you did a good job of laying this out. So this was very helpful. Can I – I want to talk to you guys if we have time about just the way you structure, like, the the returns to your investors. Yeah. Stuff. Can we dive into that? Yeah, let's talk about it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we can scroll down into it's this section, right? The structure you have. Yeah. So LP limited partner, GPs, you guys, a general partner. Just high level, walk me through the structure on this because this is one of the areas I am not an expert on. Yeah, and up until six months ago, I wasn't either. I think, you know, the the big the big punchline for this, Chris, and everyone out there is that basically, you know, I could do this project. We could, I could go and try and liquidate a bunch of things and then try and do this on my own. And I'd basically get no fees and I'd just live off the income of the property and I'd have 100% of the upside. And so naturally, as we're trying to grow and scale and, and take our business model and apply it to more properties, you know, we can bring on other people as LPs. And so what that does is it, it, it extends and kind of leverages our ability to do more projects with the capital that we have. And then, but we need to get paid for our effort of doing it. Yep. And so the way to do that is to split up the property, the project. And what we've done, you know, just through a lot of research and talking to, to some institutional investors around town and looking at people 
you know, other operators around the country is a 70-30 split with the LPs and the GP with an 8% preferred return. And basically in English, what that means is that if the project nets a million dollars, right? And this is cash flows and sales proceeds, right? Everything. Okay. That's right. So if the, at the end of the project, there's a million dollars, the 8% pref gets paid first. So if I put in $100,000, I'm going to get 8% preferred every year, right? So one year, 8%, I'm going to make $8,000 of a pref of interest. I get that back. So I pay all the LPs 8% on their money. After that, we split the profits 70-30. 70 of the LPs, 30 to the general partnership. So that million dollars, you subtracted all the 8%. That's right. Returns and whatever is left over from there. You split it 70-30. $900,000, then it's 70-30. That's right. Okay. And then we get paid a fee for basically acquiring the property. So just doing all the due diligence, um, all the due diligence, all the homework, getting the bank financing lined up, being able to close on the property. So we get a 1% acquisition fee which is roughly 38000 3.8000000 And then we get paid a 1% disposition fee. So we've done it both ways where we get, take a larger acquisition fee up front and then no disposition fee. We, on this pro- project, we decided to split it up and do a 1% acquisition, 1% disposition because there is a lot of work just to find, source the property, underwrite the property, get the loan, do all that. So there, there's a fee that's paid to the, to the general partners for doing that. And then same thing for selling it is getting this project in a place where it can be sold so everyone can uh, have a windfall at the end. And then development fee is just on the construction. And so basically we just take all of our expenses and then we'll charge a 5% fee on top of whatever that was, which ends up being very nominal. And that's for like the redevelopment cost. That's for all not, the redevelopment. Not the operating cost, but just yeah. the redevelopment. So it's, it's just the that. construction, okay. right. And then on an annual basis, the management fee of overseeing the property management, of making sure the LPs get to have all the paperwork, get their distributions, making sure the banks are satisfied with all their reporting. So there's a fee for that annual, and we just make that fixed. On these smaller deals under $5 million, we just make it fixed uh, somewhere around 1% of the purchase price. This happens to be a little bit lower than that. So pretty simple, pretty standard. It's pretty competitive. I think, you know, looking at, you know, I... We wanted, you know, Ben and I and our team, we wanted to be able to provide a great service to LPs and to our investors and really our partners. And so we tried to make something that was very conservative towards the GP and very LP friendly. Uh, obviously, we've seen, thing, you know, there's different waterfall splits where you'll see like over a 15% return. GP then takes 50% of the upside and we are just going to stay 70-30 regardless of what return. So if we, if we end up hitting this out of the park and returning 30%, you know, the LPs are still going to have 70% of the upside. Yeah, that's great. You did a great job explaining that because that's a lot of a lot of stuff to go there. And this is kind of like the the model you guys are We're going to do this every single one. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think in a couple years, once we have some exits and we we're able to show a track record uh, from this model, you know, then things could change. And, and if, you know, if we have a track record of our last five projects all returned over 25%, and then at that point, we'll probably, we'll probably adjust it some because we'll just have a lot of... Would that be yeah. more likely just like the GPLP split? Is that how they normally We'd adjust We'd probably adjust it and probably do an adjust at like a waterfall after a certain return. Okay. Uh, or maybe have a higher acquisition or higher asset management fee. You know, it's just supply and demand. Right now, as we're kind of getting started, proving ourselves, even though, you know, I do have a, a large track record of my own projects, you know, I don't have a large track record using other people's money. Yeah. And so as we're building that up, you know, there's, you know, obviously there's, there's a balance of supply and demand, but obviously as we have more demand for the projects, you know, then, then the, uh, the splits would most likely turn, but they would still be, I think just in my general nature as our company name is just value add, you know, we're looking to, we're looking to drive value to our LPs and our partners. 
And so we're always going to try and err on the side of being LP friendly. All right. So this is Greg. A couple quick questions here as we wrap up. So I know this question will come either to me or you guys, but let's get on the air. Um, can people invest in this particular deal? Yeah. So we have to be very careful here, but this, this project is already in the can. We've already raised the money. Okay. So this, so, but we're going to have other. So no to this one. No to this one. Yep. In the future, there's going to be other projects uh, very similar to this. I mean, basically every deal that we do is going to be about the same as far as like the profile. Maybe you have different neighborhood, different address, different unit count, but it's going to be the same story. It's going to be something that's 30 or 40% under market rents. We can come in there, renovate the project, give it some new life and increase and drive NOI to increase returns and and create uh, distributable cash flow to our to our partners. And so that's going to be the storyline. This particular project, uh, because the dollar amount was so low, 1.7 million, you know, it was basically going to be made up of like 10, L, you know, eight to 10 LPs. We're going to be one of them. And uh, so there's, there's this, this deal is not going to be available, but there will be others in the future. Okay. Now, if people want to, because I only talked about this before, if people want to get in touch with you for this, what, what are you looking for and how should people get in touch with you? Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for asking that, Chris. So I think the three things that, you know, if people want to get involved with us are, you know, obviously we're always looking for new opportunity. You know, I spend a lot of time, you know, with you, we do marketing, you know, we're doing podcasts, we have a ride along show, you know, we're always building relationships kind of at scale with, with people all around, all around the state and the city. And so, you know, I think people that have opportunity, other value add multifamily projects, we're looking to do, you know, five to 10 of these a year that's fit this same profile. We have quite a bit of, you know, cash on the sidelines and we have, you know, a pretty long list of LPs that want to do projects like this. So we're looking for new projects, you know, 20 to hundred, 150 units, value add, core Denver. Um, you know, that's, that's one way. I think the second one is contractors. We're always looking for new contract relationships as, as things have kind of slowed down on the new development side. I think that there's probably some good talent on the sidelines, um, that wants to, you know, if they want to work with a, you know, a reputable firm, that uh, is going to have a lot of work through the winter and year round. So we're always looking for good contractors. And then, you know, we're looking for strong LPs. You know, I think, you know, we're going to build this business on having a really streamlined process of LPs that know our process, that are looking to get into multifamily, that, that understand it and that want to invest in Denver. You know, we're, I think one of the thing, one of the reasons why I decided to go this route of syndication versus just using my own capital was, you know, everything I was seeing out there was, you know, Atlanta or South Carolina or Florida or all these bigger, you know, markets in the South where there's, you know, all these big opportunities and, and, but nothing really in Denver. I think most of the storyline in Denver is that there's no deals, there's no multifamily. It's too, it's, it's, it's appreciated too much and you can't get the return. And, and I'm, I think that we're telling the story that, Hey, there's a lot of opportunity here in your backyard and we can offer these investments to investors in Denver, they're looking to buy multifamily as a lot of people are. And you don't have to go to the Southeast or the Northeast or go to yeah. the South. You can buy, you can buy Denver multifamily. And we just want to be an option for people that want to stay in Denver and be able to go and drive their friends and their family, buy in a building and say, Hey, I'm a partner in this. And, and they don't have to, they don't have to go out of state. So that's, that's what we're doing. And we're looking for strong LPs that can, you know, help us continue to execute, execute that plan. Cool. And so we'll put, I think guys in the process, you said earlier, just kind of updating uh, a section or website to help collect the information that way you guys can reach out to people. So once that's complete, you'll email to me. We'll definitely have that in the show notes uh, right. once this goes live. So if you guys want to reach out to Terrence with a deal, contractor to invest, uh, check the show notes. The link will be on there. 
If for some reason I forget to put it in there or you can't find it, email me, Chris at Denver Investment Real Estate, and I'll definitely uh, make sure everyone gets connected. All right, uh, Terrence and Ben, I know we're just running over an hour here, so I'm going to be respectful of you guys this time. Any final thoughts or things that I for- you want to mention before we hit the stop button? No, that was great. I'm glad uh, Ben was able to join me on this. Hopefully, he'll be on. He'll be a regular here as we underwrite more deals, and we uh, we popped his podcast cherry. So that was a good day. Is that too much for you? <laughs> no, no. I, guess I think it not. was. It was too much. Uh, was too uh, much thanks for, for having me, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. No, this, thanks this, for having me. This was great, guys. Um, I enjoyed it. Again, I mentioned in the beginning, uh, this is something we'll be doing. I think, you know, we're shooting for once a month yeah. or as deal flow comes in because it's a very different side to what we're investing in. A great investment. So if you guys have feedback or more specific questions, email me, let me know because I do a lot of these shows for myself to learn and also it's just great for other people to learn and network around here. So guys, thank you. 